0: Well, I have a book in my library that is entitled, Salvation is Forever. And I'm going to ask Gwen if she would push that little button that will help me to see the same thing that you're seeing in the back. And uh, this uh, book was written by Robert Gromacki who was an excellent teacher at Cedarville University. Doesn't he look like just a warm and loving man? kind of man you'd like to sit in his class and and learn from him. The thesis of the book is very simple, that once you are truly saved, you can never be lost again, that salvation is forever. Now many of us were raised in churches uh, or backgrounds where we were taught this is not true. Uh, Some of us may have actually gone to churches that would preach against a truth like this. There was a time in my folks' life where this was true in their church. Uh, They began to learn about this particular doctrine through some other literature that began to come to their home. And when they began to talk about it, uh, one day their pastor's wife said to them, this is a dangerous doctrine. That was the response of the pastor's wife. And the reason there are people that feel this way is because they feel that if we say salvation is forever, it gives people a license to sin. That if you say people are saved forever, then what you are essentially then saying to them is, well, you can live as you please. And so many would say that this promotes living like the devil. I want to just say this morning, just because some people abuse a truth, does not mean that it is not true, right? I mean, obviously that's the case. Some people turn the grace of God into license. But that does not mean or nullify salvation by grace. And just because there are false Christians who claim a false security, and we know that is true, that does not mean that true Christians cannot claim a true security. And the question always is, what does the Bible teach about true Christians? Christians who have really been born again, whose lives have been transformed by the grace of God. Is salvation forever? Now, one of the clearest answers to this question is found for us in Romans chapter 5. And as you know, verses 1 through 11 have been answering very much a simple question. Can we rejoice in our trials? When everything on earth is going wrong for us, can we have confidence in our eternal future? Can we rejoice no matter what is happening in this life that God is working out an eternal plan that will never fail for His children? Now remember, we have looked here in Romans 5 at three answers to this question. Uh, number one, uh, God is for believers as a friend. He is not against us as an enemy. Therefore, we can rejoice in trials. Number two, God's friendship is permanent and guarantees our future hope, and that enables us to rejoice in trials. And number three, God's guaranteed future is made stronger, not weaker, by our sufferings. That enables us to rejoice, come what may. Well, now this morning, as we come to verses 5 through 11, we see a fourth answer to the question, God's guaranteed future is based on unconditional love for believers. If you're a Christian today, you are unconditionally loved by God. That not only enables you to rejoice in your trials, but it guarantees your future salvation. Let's take our Bibles and let's open it to Romans 5 and verse 5 this morning. It is page 1120 in the chair Bible in front of you. I encourage you to take a Bible because these are very, very important truths for us to learn this morning. And let's just take a moment, shall we, and let's pray as the Lord teaches us. Father, how important it is to know that our salvation is secure. How important it is to know that You are not only our Father now, but will be our Father in the judgment. How important it is to know that Your eternal plan for each of Your true children cannot fail. And we come today trusting You as You lead us now into Your Word, that we might know the truth about what You have revealed for us. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Look with me at verse 5. He says, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now I want you to notice here that he says our hope does not put us to shame. That expression, to be put to shame in this context, means it will not fail us at the final judgment. There is an Old Testament background to this phrase, put to shame, that means to suffer judgment. And for example, we can find uh, this concept in Isaiah 28.16. Listen to what God says to us. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be, and what's the last word? Dismayed. Now in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is known as the Septuagint, the word dismayed here, is the same Greek word for the phrase put to shame in Romans 5.5. 5. Now, you can understand what this means. If you put your trust in something and it does not ultimately turn out, wouldn't we be dismayed? Wouldn't we be sort of uh, disappointed? We thought something was a sure thing, and then it turned out not to be sure. It turned out to be baseless. So when the Bible says our hope in Christ as His children will not put us to shame, what it means is future salvation is so sure that we will not be dismayed at not having it turn out on the day of judgment. Now I want you to notice the reason in verse 5 here is because God has given us His Holy Spirit. Now there are two things here about the Holy Spirit that are so very important. Number one, the Holy Spirit is given as a permanent gift. The phrase poured out is another one of those perfect tenses that Paul has begun to use in Romans chapter 5. And it refers to a past action that has permanent results. So when he says that this love has been poured out in us by the Holy Spirit given to us, he is describing the Holy Spirit as a permanent gift to God's children. Now this whole verse about God's love being poured out through the Holy Spirit, it refers to Jesus' promise in John 7. And this is so important, let me read it for you in verses 37 and 38, and then I'll tell you what Jesus was um, uh, building off of as he shared this. Look at what he says. On the last and greatest day of the festival, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now here's what would happen. During the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a ceremony in which a priest would take a gold pitcher filled with water and he would lead a march to the temple while the people sang Isaiah 12.3, "...with joy we shall draw waters from the well of salvation." And the pouring out of the water reminded the people of the water that rushed from the rock in the wilderness. And it was so abundant, it was so profusive, it created such a river that it quenched the thirst of two million thirsty Israelites. This ceremony of pouring out the water also anticipated the river of living water when Messiah would come as promised by Zechariah 14.8 and we see the wonderful fulfillment of that at the end of Revelation where there's this river in the heavenly city. Now notice what Jesus says. All who would believe in Jesus would experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as He indwells us. Now, I have a question for you. Is this a trickle? Is this a little creek? What is it? It's a flowing river. A flowing river. So that every believer would experience the total and full giving of the Holy Spirit with all of the blessings of salvation. Can we hear an amen to that this morning? Yes. By the way, let me just drop this in for a moment. Don't ever let anybody tell you that you didn't receive all that God had for you in the full ministry of the Holy Spirit when you were saved. Don't ever let anybody tell you you need something more. You need some sort of a so-called second blessing. You haven't gotten everything the Holy Spirit came to give you. That is not what the Bible teaches. This is not a trickle. This is not a, a little creek. This is a river And it is for everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice the second thing about this teaching of the Holy Spirit in verse 5. The Holy Spirit, when He comes in, in this full and total way, assures us that we are the special objects of God's love. Did you see that? He pours out into our hearts the love of God. Brothers and sisters, this is unmistakable. If you were caught in a flowing river, would you know what was happening to you? Of course you would. If a river was taking you downstream with it, you would know I'm in a flowing river. And so what he's saying to us here in verse 5, in Romans 5, is the Holy Spirit gives to each Christian a vivid and inward awareness that God now loves me. I am his child. It is the witness of the Spirit that we now belong to God. Years ago, I was teaching on the new birth, being born again by the Holy Spirit in Sunday school. And I was following uh, Dr. John Wolver's, uh teaching, in which he said that being born again is a non-experiential trans- trans- transaction. And what he meant by that is simply this, you simply do not feel it physically. Because it is a renewal and recreation of your soul, uh, said Dr. Walvoord in his teaching, there are no physical sensations. You do not feel warm and tingly all over when you're being born again by the Holy Spirit. Well, there was a young woman in our class. Her name uh, is Beth Brandt, and Ellen and I loved Beth very, very much. And she raised our hand, her hand in the class, and she said, When I was born again, she said, I felt it. And I said, well, Beth, you didn't feel it. It's a non-physical sensation. And she said, well, I'm sorry to ruin your theory, but she said, I felt it. Well, I got kind of flustered. And I thought, Dr. Walford, you got me into this, and now how am I going to get out of it? And I didn't really quite know what to say. And so I just sort of embarrassingly stumbled on with the rest of the lesson. And then one day I was studying Romans 5.5 and it hit me what Beth was talking about. When you are born again, the Holy Spirit enters your heart spiritually. There are no physical sensations to that. You don't have any tingling that you feel in the extremities of your fingers when that happens. Dr. Walford was right. But there are side effects, right? And one is a wonderful sensation that you are God's child. Now, Beth was not feeling the recreation of her soul when she was born again by the Holy Spirit. What she was feeling was the witness of the Spirit to her mind and heart telling her that she was a child of God. She was experiencing Romans 5.5. 5, The love of God is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's a wonderful sensation. And if you're saved today, you know it. If you're saved today, you know what Beth was talking about. You know, there's a wonderful song that we sing, and I, if I really had gotten this all together as I should have, we would have sung this song today. But let me give to you the second verse of Heaven Came Down. And notice how this reflects much of what's taught in Romans 5. Look at it. Born of the Spirit with life from above into God's family divine. Justified fully through Calvary's love. Oh, what a standing is mine. And the transaction so quickly was made, when as a sinner I came, took of the offer of grace he did proffer, he saved me, O oh, praise his dear name. Now let's sing, read together uh, the chorus, alright? Read it with me. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross the Savior made me whole. My sins were washed away, my night was turned to day, heaven came down, and glory filled my soul. Now, how many of us can say, I have felt this? Of course. Of course. Now, here's the question for us What kind of love is this that we are singing about? Is it uh, temporary love? Or is it permanent? Look with me at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, you know what the Lord is teaching us here? He's teaching us that for every single believer, we have experienced an unconditional love. Now, in verses 6-8, through eight, what is happening here is the writer, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is comparing human love to God's love for believers. And look at what verse 7 says. The best that human love will do is to die for a righteous or a good person. Uh, There are a lot of examples of this. Um, Many, many years ago in the 1970s, there was a 24-story building in Brazil that burned to the ground. There were 600 people that worked in that building, 188 died in the flames, and the reason Moore did not die was because of the elevator operator. Here's what she was told. She was told, abandon the elevator and get out of the building, but she refused to do so. And she went up and down that building while it was burning, rescuing people bringing 25 people at a time to safety on the street below. The last time up, the power shut off. And the next day, they found her charred body next to the elevator door. Now that is an example here of verse 7. She gave her life for her friends. She died for those that she had gotten to know and come to love and been a part of day in and day out as she took them up and down in that building. That's a very powerful example of verse 7 that human love sometimes will die for a person we think is righteous or good. But now notice God's love. God's love goes immeasurably beyond that. Look who Christ died for. Let me put it here on the screen. Notice who Jesus died for. Verse 6, We were weak, unable to please God. Verse 6, We were ungodly. Leaving God from our lives. Verse 8, we were sinners, actively disobeying God. Verse 10, we were enemies, hating and opposing God. By the way, how many of you noticed the progression from bad to worse? How many of you noticed that? He starts out with, We were weak, just unable. And he ends up with, we were enemies, hating, opposing God. Who would love people like this? Who would love anyone like this? God did. God did. If you're not in awe of this, at this very moment, you need to be. This is you. This is me. Would that elevator operator have gone for people like this? I doubt it. But God did. Now what's the point then that the Bible is making? Well, let me ask Pastor Kent Hughes, who retired from College Avenue Church in Wheaton, Illinois, to draw the point for us. God's love was totally unmotivated by anything in us. We are lavished with a love that lies in God alone. It will never change. It is believers' permanent possession. That's the point that God wants us to see. I read uh, this week about a father who overheard um, one of his children admonishing another one of the siblings in the family. And here's what the boy said to his sibling. He said, you must be good or father won't love you. Overhearing that, his dad went to him and said, son, that's not really true. And the boy looked at his dad and said, but you won't love us, will you, if we're bad? And this is what his dad said. He said, yes, I will love you whether you are good or bad. But there will be a difference in my love. He said, when you are good, I will love you with a love that makes me glad. When you're not good, I will love you with a love that Hurts me. And isn't there uh, an application to God's love? God's love is permanent for the believer, it is constant. The Lord loves us as His children, whether we are good or acting bad. In fact, let me press it a little further. Are we ever really completely good? Who could raise their hand here today and say, You know what? I've reached a stage in my walk with the Lord where I am completely good and the Lord loves me because of my goodness. Can anyone? We need to be very careful. We are never loved by God because of any worth that we have before Him. We are always and ever loved by God because of a love that is in Him. And because that is true, that love can never be taken away from the true believer. If God did not love us through our merit when He saved us, He does not remove us His love from us through our lack of merit. It is a love that is sourced in Him alone. Now Paul is so good here, he wants to draw two uh, conclusions for us as we come to the end of this message, let's draw the conclusions that are found <clears throat> in verses 9 through 11, all right? This is so very important for us. Number one, Christians are eternally secure forever. Look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Did you notice the two statements of much more? What's going on here? Well, this is an argument from the lighter to the heavier. What we would call this is an argument from the major premise to the minor premise. Here's what we would say. If it's true in one place, it'll be true in another, right? What's the heavier? The heavier, more difficult thing is saving us when we were enemies. What's the lighter? Keeping us now that we've been reconciled to God and are His friends. Look at the major premise in verse 9. Notice the major premise. God justified us by Jesus' blood by the death of Christ. Notice the minor premise, verse 9b. God will save us from His future wrath... By the life of Christ. And then notice how verse 10 explains the major and the minor promise. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Here's the heavier to the lighter, the lighter to the heavier. Much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. What's verse 10 saying? If God did the most difficult thing, sent His Son to die for us while we were His enemies, then He'll do the lesser difficult thing, save us by Jesus' life now that we are reconciled. You see, if God did the heavy thing based on His unconditional love, then He'll do the lighter, the lesser thing based on that same unconditional love. Pastor Stuart Briscoe has this to say at this point. God's loving provision for us includes a living Christ as well as a dying Savior. If Jesus could pay for our salvation in His death, then He can secure our salvation by His life. We must never forget both sides. It's not just that Jesus died for us that we might be saved and have our sins forgiven, He now lives for us that He might keep us as His very own. I had a professor who used to put it this way, if God can save an enemy, He can surely keep a friend. Amen this morning? That's what this is saying. If God can save an enemy, he can surely keep a friend. And so because this is true, we are eternally secure forever. And now notice the second conclusion, number two. Let's read it together. And let's put a smile on her face, okay? Join me. This gives us incredible joy. Except when you're in church at 9.30 on Sunday morning. Then, uh, then you have no joy. Look at verse 11. More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We've been made God's eternal friends. Now I want you to think back through all that we have seen so far in Romans 5. Just let me repeat it for you. We have peace with God, verse 1. We stand in grace, verse 2. We have hope of the glory of God, verse 2. We have ripening Christian character, verses 3 and 4. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit, verse 5. We have God's unconditional love, verse 5. We have a living Savior, verse 10. We have salvation from God's future wrath, verses 9 and 10. May I ask you this morning, is there anything that compares with that? Is there anything you would trade for that? Is there anything more more permanent than that? Is there anything that is a greater source of joy than that? I saved your no for the end. What's the answer to all those questions? No, absolutely not. And so, what we have will last forever. And this gives us incredible joy. Let me close this morning on a sad note for our family. We had a wonderful time visiting my older sister down in Virginia and her family, her husband and son. My brother-in-law is the oldest of nine siblings. And over the years I've gotten to know all of them. Graduated from junior college with one of them. And um, I, I went to his brother Gary's wedding. And I remember that so long ago in a little country church. Well, Gary was 64 years of age, and so I was saying to my brother, brother-in-law brother Bob, you know, is, imagine Gary's getting close to retirement. And um, I uh, would assume that, you know, he's probably thinking a lot about that. When's he going to retire? And so we talked about that and. I had good thoughts of Gary. This past Monday, we got word that Gary was in a farm accident. The old tractor on the farm where they grew up flipped over on him and crushed him to death. They have one child, a daughter. She's to be married this summer. Bev, who graduated with me from junior college, is the one who found her brother. The funeral was on Friday. And we live in a world like that, don't we? As Ellen and I discussed it and talked about it, we said, you know, we we think we're going to live. But the truth is we're going to die, isn't it? That's the truth. We're going to die. And if you don't know right now where you're sitting, where you're going when that day comes, when you're under the tractor, and your life is gone, that's why Jesus came. He came so that you could be reconciled to God, an enemy made into a friend. And you could have a salvation that will last forever. And I can only think of the tears this summer that will be mixed with joy when Kate walks down the aisle and Gary is not with her. Life is often that way. But in Jesus and His salvation, we have a joy that will last forever. And if you don't have that, you're missing out. Not only now, but for eternity. Let's bow together for just a moment. And uh, let's take a minute just to do business with the Lord. And Maybe you're here today and You've never quite heard, maybe, a message like this. That Jesus didn't come so that you could have some sort of a vague hope. That somehow in the end you'll make it. But He came so that you could know, by the Holy Spirit coming into your life and saving you, that you are the object of God's love, you belong to His family, and you will be with Him in heaven for sure. If you're uncertain of that, you can make certain today. You can say, Lord Jesus, I, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm weak. I'm ungodly. I've been your enemy. But in spite of all that, you loved me anyway. You sent Jesus to die for me. There was no reason you should have. But you did. He rose again that I might have salvation and eternal life. And He said if I would just simply repent, turn from my own way and come to Him and trust Him, He would forgive me, save me, give me His Spirit and give me eternal life. And you can say, Lord Jesus, would you do that for me now? Would you graciously save me? Make me a child of God. Forgive me. I'm turning from my own way, I'm turning to you. This very day, I trust you and you alone for eternal salvation. And then say, Lord Jesus, thank You now that I'm a child of Yours and I'm going to follow You. How could I not? How could I not live for You seeing what You have done for me? Thank You, Lord Jesus, you may say. Father, today I I pray that You would show us the wonder of what we have. And I pray that we would live each and every day, come what may, in the light of it. Lord, we can rejoice in trials as overcomers, as conquerors. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you did the greater thing when we were enemies, you will do the lesser thing now that we are friends. We rejoice and give you thanks. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.